Hi, I'm Jessica Lindbergh, and this is the HeartStrong Podcast, where we dive into all the messiness that life has to offer, the joyful, the difficult, and the beautiful. As a mom who's faced tragedy, I want to share stories of hope, resilience, and purpose. Join us for a conversation about what truly makes us HeartStrong. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Meredith Turing. I think that as a collective humanity, our goal should always be, how can we create the best world possible for all of us? What can we be doing to make sure that we're taking care of every heart and making sure that we're doing all we can to give everyone the best chance to move forward. And for us in China, that looked so much like we're going to get all of these kids out of the orphanages and into these healing homes to make sure that we could get families who are willing to step into the space and say, we could do this. Meredith is a humanitarian and international advocate for children with congenital and acquired heart disease. She has traveled the globe helping orphan children all over the world, and I am so excited that she's here today. She's typically headquartered in China, but we are all in the middle of coronavirus because it's 2020, so we are all here in the States. And Meredith, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited you're here today. Hey, thank you so much. It's so good to be here, and I'm excited to get to talk with you. I feel like we have um, connected paths so often over the last several years, and this is the first time that we're getting to chat in person. So this is exciting. I know. I'm so thankful you're here. So we're going to dive into all the things. But before we do, I just want to give listeners an opportunity to meet you. So could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I am Meredith Touring. I go by May to a lot of my friends and family. And I spent the last six and a half, seven years in Beijing, China, working with kids with complex congenital heart defects. I'm the oldest of six kids. My youngest sister, Brooke, has a very complex congenital heart defect. And so that's kind of what threw me into the world of all things cardiac. And it has become my heart and soul. I love those little broken hearts um, with everything in me. And so um, my biggest passion is to do whatever we can to protect physical and emotional hearts of vulnerable children in need. So that has kind of guided and directed the steps over the past few years. And um, even while I'm here in America, I'm trying to find ways to continue to pursue that passion and um, still kind of stand by and stand with families who are navigating congenital heart disease in their families and um, hoping that in the midst of Corona craziness that we can get back to get back to China and have the world open up back up a little bit more um, in the future. And I love that. I know that you and I share a passion for helping children access, you know, high quality care, which is something that's needed all over the world, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have a sister named Brooke, you said, and she has a congenital heart defect. And that's kind of how you became passionate. But how did you get to China? Tell us a little bit about that story. So my time in China initially started with my parents deciding to adopt a little girl. Um, her name is Erica. She's my second youngest sister. And I traveled to China with them when I was 16 and kind of just immediately fell in love with the place, with the people, with the culture, and didn't know at that point that I would move there and end up basing my life there someday. But I definitely felt a connection and a pull and a desire to explore it more fully later on as I kind of dove into the world of career choices and colleges and all of the big decisions that you make. 
So I um, kind of put it on the back burner, went to university, and ended up pursuing a summer internship at a foster home in Beijing, China, that was for kids with all sorts of different special needs and medical conditions, but they also did have some kids there with complex congenital heart defects. And I spent about nine weeks with them there that summer. And honestly, that was kind of the catalyst for everything (laughs) that changed in my life because my littlest sister, Brooke, was there and I found her, fell in love with her and came home from that summer internship in China telling my parents, hey, there's this little girl and she has half a heart and she needs heart surgery and I think we're supposed to adopt her. Will you guys adopt her? (laughs) Wow. So that was sort of the start of it all, the start of China um, and the start of cardiac, cardiac world for me. What's a gift that every heartstrong mom is going to love this holiday season? Wine. I'm a red wine gal and I got to tell you about One Hope Wines. They combine two things that I love, wine and giving back. They have amazing choices like a Cabernet Sauvignon or a California Rosé. Not only is their wine delicious, but their wine gives back. And that's what I love about it. Every bottle of One Hope Wine makes an impact in causes around the world. Like they've built a school in Guatemala and they have funded over 190,000 vaccines to end diseases. In fact, they've donated over $5 million by sharing wine and giving hope. And here's what's in it for you. When you become a preferred customer, you can earn points every time you shop and then they can be redeemed for discounts or you can use your points to donate to a cause that you love. So head on over to onehopewines.com, O-N-E-H-O-P-E-W-I-N-E-S.com to give a gift that gives back. So then Brooke came home to live with your family and she mm-hmm. became part of your family after that. And then you graduated, I'm assuming, from university. And then how did you yeah. get back to China? It was a little bit of a winding road. Brooke came home right after um, the summer of my junior year of college. And so she came home. She had her Fontan open heart surgery about three weeks after she came home from China. And we had about a year together as I finished my senior year. And she was home, thriving, growing. Um, just loving life as part of our family. And then I actually moved to Iraq first to work with an organization that did heart surgeries for kids in Iraq. And then from there, got connected with an organization that I then joined in China and moved over, moved over to them because the cardiac world is small, you know, so once you're, (laughs) once you're kind of in that world, I was able to connect with so many different organizations that were doing similar things and similar spaces. And initially, I was a little bit funny about China when I was making decisions about where I was going to go and what I was going to do, because I almost felt like China was a been there, done that for me, where I was like, okay, I did that summer thing. I've been there with my sisters. It doesn't feel new. It doesn't feel like an adventure. Um, And I almost discounted it where I was like, eh. I feel like I feel like I've covered that. That's done. <laughs> um, but then this opportunity came up for me to move there for a year. It was like a year-long assignment at the beginning that turned into six and a half years. But um, it really it kind of took me by surprise and came out of nowhere. And I said yes to the year-long assignment and moved over to China, and then just absolutely fell in love and knew that I couldn't leave. 
And is that the Little House of Brave? Is that the place where you were? That was the Little House of Brave is what I affectionately Mm -hmm. called it. It was a foster home, a small foster home. We kept about 10 to 12 kids at a time just for children who had complex congenital heart defects. So tell me about that house. Like I'm sure people are curious, how does a child end up there? And you know, how, how do they receive care? How, how are they helped there? Yeah, it was a, it was a really incredible, special, beautiful place. And I miss it so much being here in America. And, um, I was telling a friend a couple of days ago that it's so strange because this is the longest I've been in the States basically since I graduated from university. Wow. So I'm kind of trying to figure out this whole like, oh, this is what it's like to be an American and this is what it's like to do life in America <laughs> because it wasn't my my norm or my reality for so long. But this little house in China, um, I called it the little house of brave just because these these babies had such um, brave stories, incredible hearts. They all they all were just very medically complex. And so their stories and their day-to-day just looked a little bit more difficult than others. And so they all came to me from government orphanages around China. So China has lots of different provinces, similar to the way that the U.S. has states. And so each province has their own government jurisdiction that kind of runs these state-run government institutions for children who are in need of care because they either have been orphaned or abandoned or don't have families or safe places where they can be taken care of. And typically, the healthcare that's available and the resources that are available in these provinces typically just isn't as um, as strong or as advanced as the care that is available in cities like Beijing or Shanghai or these bigger, more metropolitan cities in China. And so my home was located in Beijing next to excellent medical facilities. And so orphanage directors and my contacts at all of these different government orphanages would call me and say, hey, we just had this baby um, that was dropped off. Can we, can we send them to you? They have a very complex heart defect, but we can't do anything for them here. Or sometimes it would be an orphanage that we had never worked with before. And they would say, hey, we just found out about you. We have this five-year-old that we've never been able to have surgery prepared for or done for. Can we send this five-year-old to you to see if there's something that could be done in Beijing? So they obviously knew enough to know, especially for these babies, that they were sick, but they Mm -hmm. didn't necessarily know like probably the extent of their congenital heart disease. Yeah. It was kind of a both and where sometimes they would be very accurately diagnosed and they would be able to tell me like, Hey, this baby has truncus arteriosus, or they have HLHS. But for from a surgical standpoint, there was nothing that could be done for them in the province. So sometimes they would know exactly what was wrong and know that they needed to come up to us to be taken care of. And sometimes it was the complete opposite, where they would tell me like, "Hey, this baby looks blue. They aren't eating. They aren't gaining weight." maybe they have a hole in their heart. And then we get them and I'm like, no, they're actually missing half their heart. Like they have a single ventricle. (laughs) So it was a very wide variation of kind of the information that we were given. And my typical standard was that we never said no. If we were approached and asked if we could help, no matter how severe, no matter how scary, no matter how poor the chances looked for that baby, 
um, we would always say yes if we had the room and the beds and the the staff available to care for them. So, so these babies or children would come. How many beds do you have? Like, how much space is available for these kids? We would keep about twelve at a time, and so it was a constant rotation of kids coming in, kids being in the hospital having surgery, and then eventually the end goal was always to have them then being adopted out by families who were either domestically there in China or families who were adopting them internationally. And did you have a situation where you had to turn children away because you just didn't have enough room? We did. We always had a waiting list where we would be able to say we can't, we don't have a bed for them now, but we'll take them as soon as we can. Or, and I, I know this sounds, this sounds hard, but we also did kind of have a triage situation where if kids had a simple hole in their heart, like an ASD or a VSD, mm-hmm. we would be able to make arrangements for them to have a surgery in their own province where they didn't necessarily, just because the technical skill level for those kind of surgeries isn't as complex as what a more intense like unifocalization would be. Mm-hmm. So we would make arrangements for them to be able to have surgery somewhere else that didn't necessarily mean they had to come up to Beijing. And then we would be able to save our beds for the kids who needed the ongoing, everyday, very, very careful care, like managing the more complex defects. And so obviously you had surgeons that were, you were working with in hospitals Mm -hmm. who were willing to take on these kids. And it's even, you know, a situation here in the States where sometimes centers and surgeons don't want to take on kids who are super complex because frankly, it messes with numbers and, and and outcomes. And that's just a fact that people may not want to know, but it's the truth. And so how did you, you know, I create a relationship, I'm certain with, with the center that you kind of, that was willing to take these kids. Yeah, it, that's honestly so spot on. And I would say that China is even more so careful about their ratings in ways that the US, the US definitely is, but China takes it to the next level where they want all of their surgeries to have a 99, 100% success rate. And so if there is even the slightest chance that a child won't survive surgery, it can be very, very hard to convince a hospital in China to take them on (laughs) as a patient, which is when you're dealing with these kids who have very, very complex cardiac defects, that makes it a huge risk to be able to have a center willing to take them on. But Mm -hmm. I, I created this beautiful relationship that still to this day is one of my most prized relationships. I adore him with all of my heart, but he was, he's the chief of uh, pediatric cardiac surgery in Beijing at one of our hospitals there. And his name is Dr. Joe. And he is an angel on earth. (laughs) Mm. Um, He has never once told me, no, I will not do a surgery. He always will say, Tangmei, do you understand the risks? Do you understand what you're asking me to do? Do you understand the full extent of all this will entail? And I say, yes. And he says, if you choose the surgery, then I will do the surgery. Whatever you decide is what I will do. And so um, he loves these babies the same way that I love them. And he, he, the two of us were always, it felt like we were on the same team advocating for these kids to be able to have hope, have healing. Um, he would go to bat for me with orphanages to say, you have to send this baby to us. We'll do whatever we can for them here. You, um, like there's so much hope for them. And 
even if the worst happens, I still want to give them the chance. And I still think it's worth you sending them to Beijing to pursue this chance for them. So he was my biggest advocate and my biggest um, helper kind of on the sidelines fight where he was the one actually in the OR literally healing their hearts. So (laughs) not on the sidelines. He was very much in the game, but he, he honestly made so much possible. And um, that relationship is something that I treasure and I'm so thankful for. Absolutely. He's really, you know, one of the keys to healing the physical hearts of these kids. And mm-hmm. wow, I'm so thankful that you have him. I hope there are other, you know, surgeons coming up after him that will do the same because I know every kid deserves a chance. Every kid deserves a chance. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So after a child has a surgery and let's just assume it's successful, is the goal to does the child ever go back to their family if possible, or are they adoptions really the end goal? So there, there's actually two different tracks in China because typically I would say 95 to 98% of children in orphanages have been abandoned with no record of who their birth parents are. And so once they have become a part of an institution they then are either put into the adoption system domestically or internationally if their orphanage participates. But there really is no way to reunify them with Mm -hmm. their family. And so for a child who's coming to us from an institution, adoption is always the most hopeful end goal. Um, We do also have programs where we work with families that need assistance with their child, either finding heart surgery, funding heart surgery. um, And we partner with families and love to be able to make sure that every family has access to cardiac care for their children. But um, for the kids who are coming to us out of institutions, the end goal was almost always adoption. So these kids have been through so much. I mean, not only, you know, not being with their biological family, but then going through the trauma of heart surgery. And I can just Mm -hmm. imagine what goes on in their little hearts. Um, So much. Yeah. So much. Yeah. So much. So, you know, when Ethan, so my son, Ethan, you know, was born with a congenital heart defect and he was seven when he passed. And Ethan used to say about the kids in his school, he would always say, come home and be like, my kids, mom, my kids. So he had called his friends, my kids. And then when he would be in the hospital, he would pretend that he was a doctor and do rounds, of course. <laughs> but he always said, I have to go check on my babies. And so he'd walk through the unit and kind of like, you know, he obviously couldn't get close to them and see, but he wanted, he always called them my kids. And he taught me so much about the idea that we belong to each other and that, mm. that, that like the children, especially the vulnerable children in our world, that they belong to us and that That's we have really a responsibility. Yeah, and that we have a responsibility to them and to giving them a chance and an opportunity. And so, I don't just can you talk to me a little bit about that idea of of us belonging to one another and the world's children belonging to us? Yeah, I think that that's such a beautiful idea, and I think that it's so accurate and so true, and that we all have we all have this this innate love for each other and for humanity. And um, I just think that when we're faced with circumstances where we see 
another person struggling or in need of somebody to just come alongside them and say, hey, I'm with you in this. Hey, I'm walking this with you. How how great a gift is it to us to be able to get to be the person to step into that space and say, I'm with you in this. You're not alone. I'm going to walk with you because we know how much it means to have somebody come alongside us and do that for us when we're in that same place. And I think that it's so beautiful that Ethan felt that way about his his little friends on the unit. And I think that I saw that same phenomenon kind of come about with my kids who all lived in this little like this little home where they almost were all were all like in it with each other and cheering each other on and pushing each other forward. And I think that as as a collective humanity, our goal should always be how can we how can we create the best world possible for all of us? What can we be doing to make sure that we're taking care of every heart and making sure that we're doing all we can to give everyone the best chance to move forward? And for us in China, that looked so much like we're going to get all of these kids out of the orphanages and into these these healing homes that we called them to be able to make sure that we could get families who were willing to step into the space and say, we could do this. We can take we can take one of these children into our home and we can step into this space with them because our lives are going to be enriched by them and we're going to get to enrich their life. It's a it's a both and. It's not one coming alongside and giving so that the other can receive. It's both both sides benefit and it's so beautiful to get to walk to walk in that together. And I think that's something that you know, people maybe from the outside of difficult circumstances, it's something I want them to know that when you are willing to step into the messy middle with people to the stuff that you don't have answers for, the stuff that's difficult, that Mm. you will gain so much as a human from that, that there is so much to be gained in those spaces. And I think we live in a well, we do. We live in a society in a world that like wants the triumph, you know, and they want absolutely the, the the beautiful things, and they want the winning. And you know, we sometimes shun the things that aren't beautiful or aren't a home run, right? Mm. But how how much do people miss, you know, when they don't give themselves the opportunity to become uncomfortable and to get into those spaces with people? Absolutely. I always say and feel, and I have to be careful how I say this because I would never, ever wish suffering or harm (laughs) on another person, if that makes sense. Like I would never wish a heart defect on any child, but I do wish that every parent could experience the, the gift of parenting a child with a complex heart defect for exactly those reasons, because I think it stretches you. I think it grows you. I think it opens your eyes up to something that seems so scary and so difficult and so undoable. And you get to learn how to experience life in a completely different way where you literally take every single breath as a gift and you take every single day as a gift. And it it changes the way you see the world. It changes the way you engage with your family, with your friends. It's changed my life forever. (laughs) And I wish that everybody could experience that. And it's something that it does look so scary from the outside. And it's something that I talk to families who are interested in adoption so often Mm -hmm. where they think like, 
oh my gosh, that seems terrifying. Why would I ever choose to step into something like this? And I think it's kind of like what you and I have talked about before in the past where no, we can't ever control the outcome. No, we don't ever know what the end of the story is going to be. But we do get to know that for this time and for this moment, it's going to be a gift and that we get to walk it with them. And for me, that's kind of everything. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's like the richness of life, right? I mean, that is. That's the it space is. where like we get to really see the beauty of of life, I think. And Absolutely. I mean, I know that you know, I people say similar things to me in the work that I do with the Ethan Lindbergh Foundation. They'll say to me, "Gosh, I can't how do you do that or how do you know all those stories or isn't it so difficult to know all those families?" And I'll be honest, some days it is. I mean, some days I'm yeah. like, "I cannot take one more I can't take one more thing. I already, you know, I have my own story. I also have a son who has muscular dystrophy, who has a lot of special needs. So I'm in that daily in my house. Totally. Sometimes, yeah, it feels like too much. But at the end of the day, it's like this beautiful honor to get to be, just to step into people's stories. And I don't ever want to be outside of that. Absolutely. And it's living a life that's so much bigger than yourself. Yes. If that makes sense. You're able... You are. You're stepping into stories. You're stepping into other hearts and other homes and other families. And it brings us outside of ourselves into this greater connected world in a way that is so, so beautiful and good. This has been the craziest year. And now we're heading into the holidays and we're all asking ourselves, what the heck are we going to buy the people we love? Well, I don't know about you, but I want to share something with my friends that makes a difference. Surprise someone you love with a sustainably made Heartstrong sweatshirt or a made-for-this necklace. We have a great new holiday collection coming at the Four Heart Shop full of inspiring words and stylish clothes. Remind someone in your life or in your community that they are doing a great job. And everything that the Four Heart Shop puts out supports the Ethan Lindbergh Foundation. So you're getting something really cool and you're totally making a difference. You can head over and visit fourheartshop.com at F-O-U-R-H-E-A-R-T-S-S-H-O-P.com or click on the link in our show notes because the words we wear make a statement about who we are and what we believe. So let me ask you this question because you know, you're in a lot of difficult stories and you see all of these kids. And I still remember the um, the ICU chief when Ethan was very sick said to me, gosh, I wish I had a magic wand because I would use it on Ethan right now. And I wow. feel like that all the time. You know, there's these kids that just, they just grab your heart and you're like, oh God, if I had a magic wand, you know, right. and <laughs> we don't have magic wands, but you know, there is something about the power of hope. And mm. I'm just wondering if you can tell me, you know, how in the midst of all of this, you know, difficulty that you see, like, how do you define hope or how do you think about hope? Yeah, I think that that's such a good question. And I think that for me, hope is the most, the most powerful force or tenant that we can hold to as, as human beings, <laughs> Because it is, I think it defines how we see life and how we, how we keep moving forward in our life. If we either choose, if we choose hope or if we choose to let go of hope. And um, I think that hope is connected to our joy. I think it's connected to our courage. And 
for me, hope is something that sits outside of any kind of outcome or expectation. I don't think that we can tie hope necessarily to a predicted, this is what hope looks like if it turns out like X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. Because you and I have both seen in ways where the story does not go like (laughs) what we hoped and it doesn't turn out the way that we thought it would. And I don't think that that ever means that there was a loss of hope or that hope was not worth it or that we shouldn't have held on to that hope for the midst of it. I think that hope is the thread that carries us all the way through. And that's the continuation of that story where there is a hope that that we cling to that this is worth it and this is good and this is this is the reason why we fight and um it was interesting in china because and it's similar to the work that you do with the ethan lindberg foundation where you are seeing so many families and so many children over and over again and so they're just from the sheer from the sheer numbers standpoint there are going to be families that see really really incredible stories and recoveries and it would be easy to say in those in those cases like oh wow we hoped for this and this happened and that was great and it all went it all went well and that's hope but i think that hope is still present and still worth holding on to even in the times when the stories don't go that way and when they take a different route and for me hope is hope is the one thing that i can cling to that is worth fighting for um that carries us through and that the trust that no matter no matter what the outcome no matter what what the end of the story may be it was worth it to be able to love and to live in a way that was filled with hope instead of a life that was not, if that makes sense. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I I do think I agree. People think hope is attached to an outcome and it isn't for me either. I kind of think Mm -hmm. of like as a, I think of it like a ballast sort of um, in the center. And I also... I also always say every child is writing their story and it's yeah. not my story. I'm I'm you know a, a co-passenger with them on their journey, but um they every child deserves a chance, but they're all writing their own story. And I I also think that hope isn't lost and in this will sound crazy to some people, but it's not lost when a child dies. Because no, absolutely it, not. You know, it continues on like the hope that I gained with just the experience that I had with Ethan and with all the families that I know helps me to continue because I hope for better. I hope for mm. more. I hope for for better outcomes. I hope for better care, you know? And I think that Absolutely. we can't stop when a story doesn't go the way that we, you know, that we want it to because, you know, I believe like we're vessels. I'm a vessel. God created me for for purpose. And I'm just here yeah. to do that work. Right. And to Absolutely. walk with people. And so I just love that definition that you have of hope. And I mean, Meredith, you're such an amazing person and I could talk to you for a thousand hours about all, <laughs> all the things, but how did you, you know, become the person that you are? Like, is there um, an experience or a 
piece of advice? I mean, I'm drilling it down to like the super mundane, which is sort of ridiculous, but is there, what would you say to other people who are like, gosh, Meredith, you know, how, how are you, who you are? Oh man. Well, what's interesting is that that's very kind of you and very overkind. <laughs> it's not, not, not fully accurate, but, um, I think that something that was obviously very, very hugely influential in my life was just my upbringing where from the time I was six years old on, I was, I was traveling the world with my family, but also we were bringing children into our home that needed something extra, something more in ways that forced me as a selfish little six-year-old to be like, oh, my brothers just came home from Russia and they need to learn how to be loved. They need to learn Mm -hmm. what it means to have a family. And so it's something that was always part of my life from before I really even remember it not being part of my life. And so I think it gave me a very unique view of the world in ways that maybe might not be the typical American child's view of the world. (laughs) But I also think that I don't know. I'm a huge I'm a huge believer that we get to make our story and we get to we get to choose if we're we get to choose comfort or we get to choose courage. It's a Brené Brown quote that I, yeah, love, I love so that. much. We can yes. choose comfort or we can choose courage. And so ever since high school, I've kind of made it my my personal creed that in every circumstance where I have a choice between comfort or a choice between courage, I'm going to choose courage, whatever that looks like. And it might be something so dumb and so mundane and so nothing (laughs) that you're (laughs) like, huh, that's weird. That's a courageous choice. Okay, whatever. But it also might mean something like getting on the plane and going to China or choosing to say yes to take in another critical heart baby or choosing to say, yes, I'm going to step into this space and walk this journey with this family, even though it would be easier to just not answer that text or not answer Mm -hmm. that phone call. And so the other thing that I think is really important is that we don't have to be in some crazy far-flung place in the world to be able to do that. We can choose courage in our homes. We can choose courage in our own communities here. It doesn't have to be something that seems extreme or like, oh, only the 1% of people who are willing to do that can actually make a difference like that or make choose courageous things like that. It's like, no, we can choose to be courageous here and go show up at our local elementary school and be a friend to the person who needs a friend. Or there are so many different manifestations of what that can look like. And I think I think it's a mentality of I'm gonna do something that's challenging me and that's pushing me, but that is choosing courage and choosing hope. So those are kind of my guideposts, courage and hope. (laughs) I love that. I love that. And I I totally agree with you. I always say every person is called to impact their world. And Mm. maybe your world is in your home today with your kids or your partner or your spouse or a friend. Maybe it's China. You know, every person is different. And I think sometimes people think, well, I could never do people, you know, when I have my Ethan Lindbergh events, I, if I had a quarter for every person that walks up to me and be like, I could never do this. And what I always say to them Mm. is, yes, you could. 
I always respond to people because this is what I am called to do. But it doesn't mean that that's what you're called to do. That's your life's work to find out what your thing is and then to live courageously into that. And it could be, you know, like you said, it could be your elementary school. Every person is called to do something different. It's just a matter of finding out what that is for you and then courageously living that. I love that. And I think that's such great advice for people and something for people to think about. You know, you said something about a brother coming home from Russia and just, you know, and learning to have a family. And when I was in high school and early college, I babysat for a family who adopted two girls from China and they were actually in my wedding. And I specifically remember one of the girls when she came home, she was like 18 months. So she had been in an orphanage for a while and she was just not lifeless, obviously, like she was alive, but she, her face, she had, was pale. She was just disconnected. And I just totally. watched, I watched this little girl and I, I babysat for them all the time. So I was like in their family and I watched her come to life because she was loved. Wow. And wow. I just think that's such a, something for all humans to know is that people need to be loved and they need to be cherished. And that when we love other people, and we're having a hard time doing that here, right, in the United States right now. <laughs> but it's true. We, it's true. Like there is something that is so life-giving for people in that. And like how can we do that in our daily life in a better way I think is such a good question that we need to be asking ourselves. Mm, I love that. It's so yeah. true. <laughs> it's so, so true. It is. It really is. So tell me like what right now you're you're in the States, you're here, you're hoping to go back to China Mm-hmm. What's like feeding you right now, spiritually or intellectually, or just making you happy? Like, kind of, how are you sustaining yourself right now? Yeah, well, it's actually been a really, we've been calling it COVID silver linings because yes, it's it. things that we just never before this year, it never would have been part of our reality. It never would have happened. And so, for me, since I spent the last six, seven years living overseas, I missed out on so many um, life events with friends and family here stateside because I lived 14 hours on the other side of the world. (laughs) And so for me, one of the biggest and most impactful things that I am so grateful for this year is that I've gotten to be so present with some of my people that I have not been able to spend time with recently. And so Um, I'm getting to be part of friends' engagements and friends who are expecting babies. And I'm getting to be able to spend really good quality time living with people, again, in a way that was not me trying to figure out how to do life in a foreign country, juggling different languages, juggling different customs, you know? And so I'm sort of settling into this like, oh, wow, I get to pursue community here and I get to pursue friendships here. And that has been really, really sweet and really life-giving to me from just an emotional level for me in ways that spending six years kind of battling all the things that we battled in China, yeah. <laughs> I, was at a, I was at a point where I was just emotionally spent and depleted. And so this has been a very uniquely orchestrated who could have expected anything like this in all of our world ever (laughs) kind of way, but no one, no one, absolutely no one. But it's been a really, really sweet way for me to be able to kind of recharge and um, kind of find solid community here in a way that it was really good for me. 
but from a from like an intellectual level <laughs> i've actually been taking like a it's like a post baccalaureate course program and so i've been studying all sorts of cardiac stuff so that if i ever oh, wanted cool. to go to medical school i have all my pre med stuff done <laughs> well that's amazing which you could do yeah. for sure easily, easily yeah it's been so fun and i've loved it and i'm taking all sorts of anatomies and physiology, you know, just stuff that I'm like, oh, it's fun to be a student again. And it's fun to learn and kind of dive into this in a way that when I was in China, I never had time to really do book studying. And so you're hoping after uh, when China opens back up to go back, is that your hope? I would love to. Um, there's some, there's some projects there that I'm so deeply invested in. There's some, there's some children there that I am very, very, um, invested in and kind of working towards finalizing plans for their futures and would just love to be part of those stories. And so I'm hoping as soon as China opens back up that I can get back over there, even if it's not full-time, full-time, but at least be there for several months at a time. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And I'm glad you've had this time because it's very true when you're in a helping profession, if you will, you do need to recharge. You do need mm -hmm. to and I've learned that too, the hard way sometimes that you do need to be able to take a step back and also to trust that, like we said before, these kids are writing their story. And even if you can't be there every minute, that they are somehow held and cared for, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that there are other people that can come and, you know, there's other helpers that we hope. People step into the gap. Yeah. People really do step mm -hmm. into the gap. So kind of to wrap up today, I wanted to, this is the HeartStrong podcast and we've talked about all things heartstrung really. Yeah. But um, what, how, I guess in your own life, can you tell me something that you do to help you live heartstrong or what that means to you? Mm, I love that. I think for me, something that something that would encourage me to live heartstrong or something that helps me to live heartstrong kind of goes back to that that choosing courage where every decision that I'm making, I think like, okay, is this going to push me to be brave or is this something that isn't, that isn't challenging me or daring me or um, pushing me even a little bit more outside of my comfort zone. And I think for me, that makes me feel heart strong. Like I am continuing to grow and continuing to be stretched and um, that I'm not kind of growing complacent or stagnant in anything. Um, but I think also a way that, especially this year, um, that has really kind of helped me to live heartstrong, I guess you will, is to really just have this community that I'm falling back on. So kind of like you said, there are people who step into the gap and people who walk along with you. And so um kind of being able to walk with people who are walking similar roads and being able to reach out to others and say like, Hey, how are you navigating this? How are you dealing with this? How is, I mean, for me, it's so much of like, how's your kid doing with their complex heart defect? My kids mm -hmm. like this. <laughs> and so being able to have that community of, okay, we don't have to be heart strong alone. We can all do yeah. this together. We can all, we can kind of be this, this band of this band of mamas and hearts and <laughs> all sorts of different, different brave, brave people who get to kind of pursue a collective goal together. 
I love that because we're always better together, right? We're always better mm-hmm. together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that. Well, thank you, Meredith, so much for being on the podcast today. I just, I cherish this time with you and I want to thank you for all the things you're doing for all these kids. Um, the world is a better place because you're here. So thank you. That's very kind of you. The world is a better place because you're here. I'm so grateful that our paths connected years ago, so long ago. And it's, it's sweet to be able to see how, how it kind of does um, crisscross and ebb and flow. And I'm, I'm so grateful for all that you do. And I know that this is only the beginning. I hope that there's so much more we can do together. Thank you so much to our guest, Meredith Turing, for joining me on the HeartStrong podcast. And a super special thank you to our producer, Allison Cohen, and our sound engineer, Jared McCammon. Please rate and review the podcast on iTunes and be sure to subscribe. Join us next week right here on the HeartStrong podcast. What's a gift that every HeartStrong mom is going to love this holiday season? Wine. I'm a red wine gal, and I got to tell you about One Hope Wines. They combine two things that I love, wine and giving back. They have amazing choices like a Cabernet Sauvignon or a California Rosé. Not only is their wine delicious, but their wine gives back, and that's what I love about it. Every bottle of One Hope wine makes an impact and causes around the world. Like they've built a school in Guatemala and they have funded over 190,000 vaccines to end diseases. In fact, they've donated over $5 million by sharing wine and giving hope. And here's what's in it for you. When you become a preferred customer, you can earn points every time you shop and then they can be redeemed for discounts or you can use your points to donate to a cause that you love. So head on over to onehopewines.com, O-N-E-H-O-P-E-W-I-N-E-S.com to give a gift that gives back.